Good morning. So it is really good to be back. And uh, for those of you that I don't know, um, it's good to see you too. It'd be weird if everybody was here from two years ago that I that I knew. So I'm glad to see there's new people. And um, I kind of understand a little bit now when um, you know Paul plants some churches and then he moves on and other ministry and but he writes back to to those churches and he. He says, man, I'm eager to be with you because I've heard this, like, I've heard the reports that have, that have come, and he's eager to come back to be mutually encouraged. Uh, he wants to encourage them. He, he wants to be encouraged by them, and, and uh, I, I understand how, how he felt, I think, to a, to a greater degree. Um, and so hopefully I can be an encouragement to you this morning um, in that, and uh, you certainly have been last week and this week, and uh, just as I've been kicking around old neighborhoods in Belfast and stuff, it's been good to be back. And uh, be with you guys. So um, this section that we're looking at um, comes at the end of uh, this sermon on a flat place that Jesus is giving, this sermon on the plain. Um, this is kind of parallel to, uh, in Matthew's account, uh, the sermon on the mount. So these are, are similar uh, uh, sermons that Jesus has given, different times, different places, different audiences, but, but a lot of them are similar. And one of the similarities is the, he ends both of those uh, sermons uh, with the same story, uh, with, the, with the same analogy, the same kind of parable, if you will. And so uh, I think that alone gives us some kind of uh, understanding of the gravity and the importance of what Jesus is trying to get at, because he's given these talks, uh, he's given uh, some of his most uh, paramount teaching to people, and then he follows it up with, on both of them, this story about not just hearing what he said, but actually putting it into practice. Um, and I think that's important for us uh, today. It's important for us in uh, cultures like Northern Ireland. Uh, it's, it's important for us uh, for where I live in the U.S. now. Even in a, uh, uh, I don't live in the Bible Belt. I live in Southern California, which is probably seen to be more of the godless liberal parts of the United States. Uh, but it's important for us there because both of our cultures have, have had a history of Christianity. Right? We've been Christianized in some kind of way, and so we have, uh, in some part, have heard uh, stuff from the Bible, we, just in our culture, right? Even if you're not a, a churchgoer in a place like Northern Ireland, you've heard different things. And often Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And so I feel like Jesus is, is, is wanting us to hear and to actually uh, hear with our hearts and not just with our ears at the end of these sermons that he's been giving. Um, uh, within this. And so here he, he tells a story uh, about um, two, two trees. He tells a story about really two builders. I want to focus on the two builders uh, mainly this morning because he says there's a way that you can say um, the right things, right? I, I can say, so he says, why do you say or why do you call me Lord? We can say but not do, and these are just kind of empty words. Or we can hear and not do, and it kind of reveals our empty hearts. Um, and so Jesus is always concerned about uh, our interior life, uh, our heart, who we actually are, and not who we kind of are on the outside, um, because it's easy to put on a facade, right? We all can kind of play out or pretend uh, to be certain things. And Jesus is really concerned about that, so much so that a lot of his, like, even in, in, in his woes uh, or his warnings, uh, a lot of Jesus' sharpest words were to those kind of people, people who were on the outside very religious, on the outside kind of uh, appeared to be uh, people who would call him Lord, um, and yet 
their hearts were kind of empty on the inside. Um, and so this morning, um, this is going to be a little bit of a, a paradox, right? You know what a paradox is? Something that seems to be um, contradictory. So Jesus' teachings here uh, on the surface might seem to be kind of contradictory to some of his other teachings or teachings that are foundational to our understanding of how we become Christians. Uh, but hopefully, as, as if we're patient enough, we'll actually see that they're not. They're actually... Um, two things that actually go together and can't be, can't be separated uh, in that way. Um, so we have these two builders um, in, in this story, and they've both built a house, right? He, he says, so w- what he's getting at, he says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? To, uh, to tell you? Everyone who comes to me, he's going to start off with a positive, who hears my words and does them, who puts into practice his teaching, um, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. When the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and, it, and could not shake it because it had been well built. Dug deep, built a house on a foundation, and the storm um, couldn't, couldn't uh, stop it. And the one who hears and, and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And then unless, uh, in case you think this is like, oh, some ancient kind of tale, literally I saw a video this week in the United States of someone who, built, who bought a house nine months ago in North Carolina, and it literally got washed into the ocean. Um, so they built it on these kind of like stilts, you know, so water can kind of flow underneath it. But those stilts didn't get down to anything of any kind of significance. And his $800,000 house literally turned into a boat <laughs> in the ocean and, and just crumbled apart as the waves crashed against it. Imagine buying a house nine months later for $800,000 and then watching um, it just become, you know, a fish's playground. Um, and so this is an important kind of uh, uh, story for us. I want us to notice several similarities between these two builders, though. Um, first of all, both individuals are building a house, right? And... and uh, we're not going to allegorize this, so a house and, and all these things aren't, aren't going to equally represent. Uh, we're, Jesus, I think, is, is given an analogy here. But they're both building a house, right? They're both involved in, in spiritual activity. They're both involved in something that has to do with the kingdom of God. They're both hearing um, God's word, and, and, and there's um, a, a response of some kind of, in, in their building. Secondly, it's apparent that they both kind of build their house in the same vicinity or location because it's the same storm. Um, that hits the houses. They build a house. They build it in the same area, same location. Uh, they're both subject to the same store. Um, and this is true in a lot of Jesus' teachings when it comes to who are really his, who are true uh, followers of Christ. Because in that, invariably, they live by, side by side. They're on the same block. They attend the same church. They go to the same Bible studies. They're so similar in the building that they build are indistinguishable to most people. Right? So Jesus will tell a parable about wheats and, and weeds kind of growing together. And uh, you can't really start to separate them um, because uh, they're indistinguishable. Or, or sheep and goats, which I never understood that until I saw the Middle East. And sheep and goats actually look really similar, especially kind of from afar. Um, and, and it's not until the end that, that uh, after everything is harvested that these things get separated out. Um, also, we might add a, a third thought that apparently... Uh, uh, they're built in the same way because he says the only difference is the foundation. Jesus doesn't imply that the house itself is any different, 
people build a house, they build it in the same place, they kind of build it in in the same way, other than one dug deep down to a, a foundation and the other did not. In other words, they might carry a Bible, they might both carry a notebook to a Bible study, they both both go, you know, through certain prayers, do certain activities. They might both give uh, to the church in that way. It really does look very much the same until we get to the crux of the matter, and that's the foundation, which, as you know, isn't often visible once the edifice is, is up. You can't really see that. It's underneath. It's hidden. It's only an honest and careful, soul-searching self-examination that can kind of reveal What's underneath? Um, Jesus says, as he's teaching this, um, and certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of that is aimed toward the Pharisees, trying to get us to understand, to come off our kind of uh, prideful selves and look at our own lives, to actually maybe take account of how bankrupt we might be, because the only place uh, that you can tell the tale of what's really happening is underneath the surface. One builds on the rock at, uh, that we see, and the word that he uses here is, uh, so there's Greek, there's different Greek words for different ones. There's petros, which can mean like a stone or a rock or like a boulder. But the word he uses here uh, is petra. It's, it's a rock bed. So whoever's built this house has built, they've dung, dug deep, as he says, down to the rock bed. Not just till, uh, you know, it, it's taken some work. Imagine building a house and if you're building a house there, you're probably building it not in the winter, because the winter there would have been the rainy season. So you're building it in the summer. And there, that, the, the surface can get kind of like baked clay. It can be hard work to dig and to dig and to clear out enough of that to get down to the bedrock. It'd be very tempting to just, you know, make it kind of level and, and go, man, this feels pretty solid. This feels pretty, pretty good. I'm just going to build a house here. Until the winter comes, until the storms come. And it starts to erode away uh, what wasn't actually solid to begin with. And so the other builds on sand. Um, And here we get this contrast of one who is hearing the Lord and actually putting into practice um, in their interior life um, the way of Jesus. Actually, they have a a relationship with Jesus. They they know Jesus. the first part of the story talks about a tree who produces good fruit and bad fruit. So the evidence of a tree, a lot of trees look similar until they start to produce fruit. That's how you can tell the difference between an orange tree and an apple tree. And so I, I, I live in a place now uh, where we have a lot of different fruit trees, um, but they all kind of look the same. Uh, you can't really tell the difference between a lemon tree and an orange tree and really a grapefruit tree. They all really look pretty similar until they start producing fruit. And then you go, oh, okay, that's a lemon tree. That's an orange tree. And it's the same in the Christian life. A lot of these things kind of look the same. It's the fruit is the evidence of really what's in the DNA of this plant, uh, of what it's like. Arthur Pink uh, says this. He says, speaking of kind of those who just go through religious motions, he says, they bring their bodies to the house of prayer, but not their souls. They worship with their mouths, but not in spirit and in truth. They're sticklers for uh, baptism or early morning communion, but they take no thought about keeping their hearts with all diligence. They boast of their orthodoxy or their correct doctrine, but disregard the precepts of Christ. Actually putting it in to day-to-day practice or the interior life of what it actually means to abide with Christ. 
And so when we say we're building our life, we sang this song, right? Christ is our, uh, God is our rock. When we build your life on the rock, what are we actually saying? Um, we could make a case, oh, you know, well, God is our rock. We sang that this morning. And that's certainly true in some sense. Uh, Psalm 18, verse 2, uses that language, the Lord is my rock, right? In that way, he's our refuge, a fortress um, that, that we build upon. But I, th- I think even the Pharisees would acknowledge that, who was often the target of Jesus's um, uh, criticism. Or we could say that the rock is Christ, right? Uh, Jesus has referred to that as like the chief cornerstone, um, a foundation upon which is built. And, and there's an aspect in which that is true as well. But it's easy, I think, to say those things. And what Jesus wants to get at here is defining what we mean by that. Why do you call me Lord and yet then not actually do what I say? So the Pharisees were doing certain kind of things. They were keeping the law, and yet they were really ignoring um, all of what Jesus was actually getting out, what the law actually was driving them um, toward. Here in this uh, analogy that Jesus gives us, the rock isn't just some abstract version of God. It's not just some abstract version of the Lord. It's actually putting into practice. It's actually obedience to Christ. Whoever hears these sayings of mine builds his house upon a rock. It's whoever does them, not just whoever hears them. Both the builders heard, both the builders received, but one of them actually dug down deep into the interior and built their life upon that. And this is, I think, a really important distinction in a place like Northern Ireland, in a place like the United States, or where cultural Christianity has kind of taken place. Um, This distinction between genuine Christianity versus cultural Christianity. Because it's very easy, isn't it, to, in a a place that has kind of cultural Christianity, um, like Northern Ireland, to kind of just go along with that and to actually maybe deceive ourselves into thinking that we're actually a Christian in that way. Um, It's much harder if you go to a place where Christianity has never really taken root at at a broader cultural level. When, when I travel to those kind of places and I meet Christians, I'm like, oh, there's no kind of like pretending like you're a Christian here. Like you, you're the real deal. Because there's no, there's no cultural Christianity to kind of like carry you along, um, to kind of just um, participate in at any kind of surface level. It's, it's a real and genuine faith because Christ is all you have in those places. Um, now, I've been in those places where if you're a Muslim you can very easily kind of be a cultural Muslim, right? Because there's, there's cultural uh, Islam kind of that can carry you along. But we're susceptible to the same thing as Christians. Um, we have a cultural Christianity here that you can kind of participate in in a surface kind of level, and yet Jesus says it never really penetrates down into our heart. Um, we have, I think, in, in, in places like where we live now, what is really a moral therapeutic deism. Those are big, fancy words. What does that actually mean? Moral, it, there's a sense of kind of like goodness uh, to that. Um, it's therapeutic in that it makes us feel good um, or justified in a certain kind of way. And it's deism, so we recognize that it's, there's a God out there in some kind of way. So here's what those things kind of have in common. If we walk through kind of moral therapeutic deism. One, we would acknowledge a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay. You're like, okay, so far so good. Christians believe that too. 
God wants people to be good or nice or fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and also in most other religions. The central goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. For God doesn't need to particularly be involved in the details of one life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem or in moments of crisis. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Right? That's kind of moral therapeutic deism. And there's a lot of people who that's kind of their general worldview and yet claim to be Christians. And this is what Jesus is getting at. He's like, that actually isn't what, mean, what being a follower of Christ is. And yet, how much does that kind of describe what we would describe a lot of like Western Christianity is like? We kind of give nod or intellectual to assent to, oh yeah, there's a God who's created us and he kind of watches over us. And, um, you know, we should be good people. We should be moral people. We should be, you know, nice, treat others as you'd want to be treated for the most part. And, but my real aim and goal in life is to be happy or comfortable or feel secure. And that's really the motivation of what m- my decisions are, are, are made by. God doesn't need to be really particularly involved in the moment-by-moment, day-to-day. Now, when I get in trouble or something, then he's kind of a genie in the lamp I can, you know, rub and ask for, you know, help with. And generally, you know, people that abide by that are good people, and, and they'll go to heaven. Yet, Jesus kind of takes square aim at that through all of his teachings. He says, no, it's only the people who are, who are truly mine um, that actually I know um, who will spend eternity with me. And what's scary about that is, is that we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're a part of those people because we kind of go through religious kind of activity. Um, in Luke 18, Jesus, uh, let's actually just turn there with me. Um, we'll, we'll just zip ahead to Luke chapter 18. Um, Jesus tells this other kind of parable, and um, it's going to get out a little bit of what we're going to get to. And this is where this paradoxical nature of uh, Jesus' teaching is going to come into play here. And so hang hang with us. Jesus in, 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 uh, in Luke 28, uh, verse 9, um, he says this. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he's getting out people who are relying on themselves to be counted as righteous or right before God. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, Here we have a tax collector and a Pharisee, and the tax collector wanting to justify himself is kind of pointing to his good works, right? I, I do all of these things, and yet here is Jesus saying, um, in Luke uh, 6, why do you call me Lord and yet not do what I say? Now here's someone who's claiming to do what Jesus says and yet he says he's not actually justified. It's the one who's just 
the lying and calling out to Christ and, and his mercy is the one that is justified. And so you're like, okay, well, which, which one is it, Jesus? <laughs> are we justified by the good things that we do? Or are we, um, or, or is it God's grace alone in that? Um, and so there's two things that are happening here. And we can't mistake our sanctification for our justification. So our sancti- what, what, do those mean? what do those mean? So people who are seeking to justify themselves. Our justification is an act of God to make you just or right because we are united to Christ. And he is just. His righteousness uh, makes us righteous through faith. So it's only uh, through faith in Christ that we are made right before God. That's our justification. The Pharisee in this is, is pointing to his works as his justification, and our works are never good enough to make us right before God. It's only Christ and his works that are good enough to make us just before God, right? So that's our justification. There's nothing you can do to earn uh, your way uh, before God. So think of it this way. Salvation is free, and it costs you nothing. There's nothing you could do to earn or pay uh, your way before to, to be right before God. That's only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we plead the blood of Christ, our forgiveness of sins. We turn from our sin, and, and that's what makes us right before God. That's our justification. But then there's our sanctification, which is this. It's also an act of God through his spirit uh, and, and his word to change us step by step into more of the likeness of Jesus. Paul will refer to this as the fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus says it's the fruit that actually bears the evidence of what kind of tree you are. Right? So justification. Your salvation is free. It costs you nothing. Following Jesus can cost you everything. Your sanctification. So it seems like a paradox, right? Well, uh, am I justified by what I do? No, there's nothing you could ever do to earn favor before God. That's only um, bought by the blood of Christ. That's only us. But if that is a genuine kind of faith, it results in the, in the kind of fruit that it produces that we actually dig down deep and we build a life upon the foundation of Jesus' teaching. So the, the foundation is obedience to Christ in that. So when the storm uh, comes... You actually have, have uh, built a life upon something that will last. The Pharisee has built a life on sand. He, he can point to, well, I tithe. Uh, I don't cheat on my taxes. Uh, I'm faithful to my wife. Like I have a whole lit. And you're like, this guy would make a great elder at a church. Like he tithes. He's honest. He, you know, he, see, he does all the religious things you're supposed to do. And yet it's all, it's, not, it's all just built upon him trying to justify himself. This is what he's relying on to justify himself. And so it's sand. When the storms come, it all crumbles. There's nothing of substance that's actually there. He's not united to Christ. He's not in Christ. It's not the spirit that is producing uh, change in his life from from a changed heart. He still has a heart of stone. He's just trying to plod his way to justify himself. Does that make sense? You see how these things seem like they're a paradox uh, they seem they're, like they're contradictory, but they're not. They're just two sides of the same kind of coin. Jesus is the righteousness for us. Jesus is the righteousness in us. The second is built on the first. So we go, um, 
on as we think about what does it actually mean then to, to build um, and to examine our own kind of hearts and lives. In John chapter 8, uh, it says in verse 30, uh, he, he says, as he spoke these words, Jesus, now listen to what he says. He says, many believed on him. Great. All right? So Jesus' teaching, many believed on him. It says, they heard, they listened, they took it in, they accepted it. But Jesus said to them, if you continue or if you abide in my word, then you are my real disciples. So there was something in not just a belief or acknowledging some kind of a belief. Jesus says, okay, that's great. But will you continue? Will you abide in my word? Will you actually um, take that and dig deep into our lives and build a life upon that? Then you're my real disciples. It's not just in the hearing um, and, and the believing. It's not just giving intellectual assent. That's therapeutic deism in that sense. So Jesus says, don't be deluded. It doesn't matter what we kind of verbally claim. Unless you build a life on a biblical truth, we can deceive ourselves. This is what Jesus' half-brother James says in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word. Be doers and not hearers only. This is what Jesus is getting at, right? Don't just hear, but actually put it into practice. Why? Deceiving your own selves. Our hearts are deceptive. We can even deceive our own selves. If we hear it, we don't do it, then we're self-deceived. In other words, we're not actually putting it into practice. At a, and not just at an external level. Pharisees were good at that. But at an internal level, how do we think about things? When we have um, decisions to make in our life, or even how we think about certain issues that are presented to us, um, what's our framework of how we think about those things? What's the, le- the lens by which we view the world? And if that's not the teachings of Christ... And we just kind of like go back to those things when we're in trouble or when we feel unease or we, we want to comfort ourselves in those things. It's not the actual cold face of, of life day in and day out. Then we might be deceiving ourselves, Jesus says. Colossians chapter 1, tw- uh, verse 21, we read this. He says, and you were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works uh, uh, that he is now reconciled. So that's great. Jesus has reconciled you, he goes on in verse 23, if we continue in the faith grounded and settled. In other words, the the truly saved, those that are truly reconciled, are ones who continue in a life of obedience. It's It's the fruit, it's the evidence that we're actually in Christ. In John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, and by this we know that we know him. This is great. How do you know if you know him? How do you know if you're a Christian? He says, if we keep his... Commandments. Titus 1.16, they profess they know God, but in works they deny him. They are detestable and disobedient. There's a certain kind of fruit that is produced when we actually are in Christ. Um, and this is kind of a heavy thing uh, for us to hear um, because we're all about God's grace and his mercy, right? That's, that's how we come to God. There's nothing that we can do, and yet, once we are in him, his spirit is in us, we're sealed in the spirit, we're actually believers, there's a process by which we actually start to follow Christ. We actually put this into practice. The spirit changes our desires, right? We were once alienated, we were once enemies, but now we have the spirit of God in us that actually changes us at a heart and desire level, not just an external level, 
actually, I'm grieved when I sin against the Lord. And I have to go in repentance. And let me just say that up front. This doesn't mean that we are now sinless people. We will continue to, to struggle and, and work this out. Our sanctification is progressive. It's not just instantaneous. Um, but we should have lives as true believers in Christ that are marked uh, with confession and repentance um, in that. That our, 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 our sin uh, grieves us as it grieves the Holy Spirit. Or we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We just ignore that. We can have callous kind of hearts uh, towards that. And that's where we get into this place then that Jesus warns us of. The wise man dug deep. The deep foundation. So that's a question for us. What are you building your life upon this morning? And I think if, if, if you are here and you claim to be a Christian, it's very easy. Well, I'm building my life on, on Christ. I'm building my life on the gospel. Um, and those are right answers. And yet we come back to what Jesus said before. Why do you call me Lord if we don't actually obey what he says? So the question is, if the answer is, well, I'm building my life on Christ, what is the fruit of that? Are we actually? Are we actually? And I'm, um, if I'm being honest, there are probably seasons in my life where I, I kind of become a little wayward. And it's not like, oh, I'm off committing these Sins, I could still say what that Pharisee said. I tithe. I, I'm, I'm not an adulterer. You know, I'm, I'm honest in all of these kind of big categories. And yet, if I'm honest in my heart, it's, I, I start to notice, oh, I don't pray as much. I'm not in the Word as much. I kind of start relying on my own strength and mind in my decision making. I'm really just kind of living my life apart from God in any kind of meaningful way. Um, and yet, God in His grace and His mercy... And by his spirit, woos me back to him once again. And he's ready once again uh, to forgive us even of our waywardness, right? It's the prodigal son. Um, there are times where I am the younger brother who thinks, you know what? I can make this on my own. I can go out and I can cut my own. I can blaze my own trail. And then you end up going, what have I done? And, uh, and we come back to the father. And the good news is the father is there with open arms waiting once again um, to receive us in. And so when I hear these passages, it's hard to hear them. It's hard to preach them because on the one hand, it feels like this kind of weighty, like, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing, graceless sort of sermon? And yet on the other hand, it's only because of grace. It's only because of mercy. It's only because that God gives us his spirit that we're able to even make these distinctions. And so this is a warning of Jesus um, that, hey, if you're calling me Lord, if we're naming the name of Christ, that we are a Christian, is that work, are we digging down deep? Is this, or is this a surface level kind of religion that, we, that we're going about? Because that's actually a pretty easy thing to do in a place like Northern Ireland. It's an easy thing to do in a place like America. There's enough kind of cultural uh, Christianity that I can be involved in and deceive myself into thinking and do the same thing. Like the Pharisee, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. And yet I'm comparing myself to the wrong thing. There's always somebody going to be worse than you. But you're always the one that's worse compared to other people too. Which is why we can't compare ourselves to each other. We stand before a holy God where we've all fallen short uh, of his standard. And which is why we come back to how we're justified. It's only through Christ. 
It's only through his mercy. It's only through his grace that is freely offered to all. But as we receive that grace, as we receive that mercy, it plays itself out in us building our house, us building our life. And that requires digging down deep to the foundations of actually obeying what Christ says, of actually putting that into practice, of living a life of repentance when we don't. Because when the storms come, um, our life will either stand or, to use that language, they fall in a great way. What is the storm that Jesus is referring to as we close? Is it just the troubles of this life? The, storm, the Bible refers to storms in that way, like trouble that comes in this life. Um, and I think that's true for sure. But there's also a greater kind of uh, way that the Bible uses uh, the word storm, and that's for judgment as well. So it's not just our troubles in this life. It's the final storm. It's the final judgment in which our life, our house, either falls or stands. So this isn't like, hey, just good advice for, um, you know, good living. This is like foundational, like our eternity hangs in the balance in this because it's the evidence of actually are we in Christ or are we not. Um, and so uh, heavy things for us to think about, for us to consider, um, and only you kind of know that. Um, we come once again, um, by the power of God, um, and, and ask his spirit to do what his spirit can do, to give us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone, to convince us, uh, convict us, where we may be kind of building on sand in our life. To hear the spirit, just a garbage can, no problem. Um, to hear the spirit woo us back again, um, to dig deep and to build our life, on obedience to him. Um, he waits with open arms. Um, let's just take a moment just to give the spirit room and space to do that, and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for um, your word. It, uh, it always is powerful. Father, we uh, confess that and on one hand, this teaching is, is just so simple. <coughs> it's, uh, it's what I tell my kids. Not just to, to say they're doing the right thing, but to actually, to actually do it. Yet, Father, we confess that our, our hearts apart from you are are deceptive, they're wicked, they, we can um, deceive ourselves and, and not even realize it. And so, Father, we need your help this morning. We need your spirit to reveal those things in the inward part of our life that no one else knows, the hidden part, the foundational part that's, that's covered by a building and a life on top of it. Father, how um, we, we just think of, of uh, Paul when... Uh, he talks about living a life 
uh, that's kind of religious on the outside and it just being completely in vain and just how absolutely empty that would be if it weren't for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel this morning is that it doesn't matter how sinful we are, um, that you offer grace and, and mercy uh, to even the most vilest of sinners. Thank you that it doesn't depend on our works, like the thief on the cross who literally had no works to show for it, and yet you told him because of his faith he would be with you in paradise. And yet, Father, we, uh, you've given us a much um, clearer perspective, this side of the cross, this side of uh, your resurrection, 2,000 years of church history. So, Father, we pray once again that you would uh, work in our hearts, that you would change our desires, that you would help us turn uh, from sin, that we would see Jesus as, as beautiful and as glorious as he is, an expulsive power from our sinful uh, desires. God, only you can do that. We can't do that even of ourselves. And so all of this is a work of your spirit. We ask that you would um, just give us the courage to be honest with ourselves, uh, to make changes in our life, to turn from our sin, to live lives of repentance once again. Father, we thank you for that grace and mercy that is new every morning. Um, may we continually run to it and uh, dig deep.